This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. It seems hard to believe, but not too long ago, it was difficult to generate actionable data. Now we're drowning in it. Comparing to just a few decades ago, technology is dramatically less expensive today. As a result, data collection is faster, it's more automated, it's cheaper. You and I create so much data a day that to put a number on it seems almost silly. It's irrelevant within a few months. We've become data hoarders. I'm one of them. A very real challenge has been how on earth are we going to organize and store all of this data? Well, this week, I'm joined by Dr. Nick Geis from the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Dr. Geis is part of the team that is taking electronic data and archiving it using synthetic DNA. We're using a carbon-based product to store bits and bytes. It's fascinating. I hope you enjoy this conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Nick, welcome to the QTS Experience. Oh, yeah, thanks for having me. So I've recently come across this idea of DNA storage and it's blowing my mind. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Uh, I've been in IT for, I don't know, 30 years, 25 years. And for a good portion of the time, the conversation was primarily around compute and later uh, short-term memory, RAM, or, or whatever. We, we want enough power to process things. We want enough thread to do it. Um, and then it became memory. We need to free memory in the early days of uh, IT. I know I'm dating myself, but we had to use to edit the config.sys and the mm -hmm. autoexec.bat. We had nobody's had to do that for 20 years, but we used to do all of that. And then it was attached drives, later becoming much more sophisticated with SAN and NAS and all these other attached things. <clears throat> and probably 10 years ago, at least in my personal experience, the conversation really became pointed around storage. We're generating so much data. You can go back to TED Talks starting 20 years ago, and every other year when there's a conversation that relates to data, somebody will say something like, we've generated more data in the last two years than the, all of history combined. And every year or two when they update that, it's true. Mm -hmm. we, we, don't, we didn't think for the longest time we could generate more data, we always do, now that we've connected everything that can be connected. And so storage began to dominate the conversation. How do we physically store it? How do we order it? How do we protect it? And a guy named Dave McRory, who's, I think he worked for GE at the time, if you're not familiar with him, but he coined this term called data gravity. He's the first one that most people recognize as saying that, and his idea is in the same way that a celestial body, once it achieves a certain amount of mass, can affect things around it in a gravitational pull and pull things to it, the data sets are getting so big that, that, that they're pulling applications, they're pulling things to it more than apps are pushing data between them. And that we're not gonna spend time on that concept, but that, that really became familiar with me and one of his big things was, it's not just that amount of data, but if you think about how much power it would take to push all of these data sets 
just not just around the world, but even just around a data center, around a, a metropolitan area. It's just too much. And so people have been talking about it for a long time. And just recently, I realized that it's been around for a while, but I've just recently been exposed to this idea of DNA storage. So why don't we start with, first, what's DNA? Everybody's probably heard about it, mm-hmm. but I don't know that they know what it is. Um, sure. So, I mean, uh, you know, and, and I'm not a biologist. I, I'm, I'm actually a physicist by, by training, but, you know, D- DNA is, is the molecule in, in your body. It's a you know, it's a polymer basically mm-hmm. um, that that encodes uh, all of our genetic material. Right, mm-hmm. each each cell in your body has has chromosomes containing DNA. There's something like three billion base pairs. Um, you know, that, that constitutes your genome. So so all the information that that makes up you for a person, and then you know any other biological organism will have its own DNA. Mm. Um, so it's it's really the we we like to say in in this context, it's it's the biological data storage medium. That that's what it does. It. Is um, when we say DNA, is that in every cell we have it, it exists, or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, there's a copy, right? So you okay. start, um, yeah, starting from from an embryo. Each time it divides, it also copies the DNA. There's a replication process, and so each cell ends up with, you know, with with sort of a full copy of all your of all your material. Which, which again, if you compare it to sort of conventional data, that amount of replication and copying is, you know, is is tremendous. But it's something the DNA does sort of naturally. Doesn't that when you say that, we just say that like it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that blow your mind? Oh yeah, it's 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 tremendously complex. And again, I'm not a biologist, but it involves you know a number of enzymes to you know snip the double helix in half and then right. run around one strand and the other to to build the complement. So so it's it is tremendously complicated. And you you know, but but your cells and, and the DNA itself is sort of evolved to to do this to to replicate efficiently and to store data efficiently and. Why would we think about, as you came to understand this idea, later in the conversation, I want to get into how a physicist ends up doing this. I'm sure there's a great story there. But the data storage that I'm most familiar with, at least long-term storage, is a hard drive or uh, even a um, solid-state drive that Mm -hmm. we, we have now. Why would it occur to somebody to store uh, ones and zeros or electronic data in biological genetic material? Like, how how are you familiar with how that story started, or just your personal experience with it? Yeah, so the 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 idea has been around probably since the the nineties, or sort of the first papers on on DNA data storage in, in this sense. But um, it's been a kind of science fiction idea for longer than that, because uh, again, that's what DNA does. It basically stores information uh, for us. Mm. And and what you're saying about, about data gravity and the, the increasing production of, of digital data, that, that's how we often introduce it to people not in the data storage field is, right. is you know, we sort of have a, a looming crisis in, in that we keep producing exponentially more data, but, but technology to, to improve things like hard drives is, is kind of leveling off, right? right. We're, well, we're well off the end of Moore's law now. Right. Um, and so people have been looking for kind of transformative technologies, you know, not just, you know, squeezing more magnetic domains on a, on a disk, but, mm-hmm. but entirely different systems that could get you to much higher data density, which is the sort of thing you need if you're going to be able to keep up with our data uh, production. Right. Um, and so there, there's a couple of reasons that, that we started looking at DNA. Um, the, the first is that it's, it's sort of inherent data density is, is orders of magnitude higher than 
than anything we can kind of fabricate ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sort of fundamental length scale between like one base pair in a in a helix of DNA and the next is sub nanometer. So you can you can squeeze your your bits equivalent of bits you're very very close together. So if you think about that, so when I if I'm talking to somebody about storage and hard drives, we a buddy of mine were just laughing the other day. We went into Walmart or whatever. I want to say there was a 64 gig thumb drive. I forget what the size is, but mm-hmm. 32, 64, whatever it was. And it was like 20 bucks. I don't yeah. even think it was 20 bucks. It might have been eight bucks. Whatever it was, we were just like, can you believe we got this much space on this little thing for this little price and et cetera? We're just chuckling. And and it's nowhere near the amount necessary. You know, that's uh, 10 uh, HD movies for mm-hmm. a flight. Um, so if you think of the entire movie catalog, that's, I, I don't even know what the entire movie catalog is, but it's you know trillions and trillions of uh, bytes of data, um, maybe more. To, to um, you know, how would we store all of that? And then when we, as we continue to upgrade our entertainment experiences from 1080 to 4K to 8K, mm-hmm. whatever, I don't know what K we're going to get to. I'm uh, when I have a conversation with someone about the size of hard drives, they, especially if they've been in our business, they get it. They they know the difference between a terabyte drive from a few years ago um, to solid state drives, and they they have a sort of a, an order of magnitude size in mind. But it also usually means as we upgraded the hard drives, we've upgraded the power requirement. We've um, we've made them in many cases smaller or about as small as we can squeeze that platter in. But certainly we're generating heat. Certainly we're consuming power. And so if you're a gamer or you're somebody that needs rapid access to storage, people are running liquid cool machines and mm-hmm. all this other stuff. So when you think of an order of magnitude, if I've got... I don't know, a good size hard drive and I need 10,000 of them. How, when I think of DNA, is there an equivalent? Like it could store a whole computer's worth, a whole building worth. What, how would you think of it? Yeah, it's, um, it's a little tricky because DNA kind of breaks that model where, where you have a, you know, a drive with the information sort of in a fixed position <clears throat> written right. over the, the area of the drive. Um, and that, that's one of the advantages of DNA is you can write it on a chip and then, and then wash it off and your data is sort of separate from the, the thing that wrote it. Um, mm. But if you're just talking about the sort of data density of DNA, you can store something like, a you know, in principle, something like a terabyte of data in a nanogram of DNA. So, you know, a speck of dust, right? Um, in practice, you have to think about how you would actually retrieve that data. And right. so I think a more practical size is more like a petabyte on something like a, you know, a credit card right. type surface. Still, that's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it's enormous. So imagine, yeah, replacing, you know, racks and racks of hard drives with, you know, one card with like spots of DNA on it. That's the, that's the sort of, uh, gain that's possible with DNA. Right. It's, it sounds like you're saying, look, in theory, you could get all of that data, on to something the size of Earth, but in practice, it's only the size of North America. Right. Like, it's still a ridiculous... Still, yeah, that's still, a lot of grass to mow. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so how does, the, how does the science then, I guess, work? I, I've got a rough idea of how electronic data gets written to a hard drive platter or solid-state drive. How does it work in DNA? Yeah, so... Um, 
So the you know the 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 basic unit of DNA data, um, the equivalent of like a one and zero in a what I'll call a conventional <laughs> data storage, mm -hmm. um, is is one base of the of the DNA strand. So the <clears throat> Excuse me. So you know, DNA has you know four natural bases A, G, C, and T, right? Okay. So your your genetic code is a series of those. We call them letters. They're they're actually different you know uh, sort of molecules okay. that bind together. Um, and so the 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 first step in converting data to DNA is is just having kind of a codec to, to transfer digital data to from ones and zeros to a sequence of, of A, G, Cs, and Ts. So mm. you can go from you know an arbitrary digital file to an arbitrary sequence of of DNA. Um, the, the science then comes in is, is, is how do you write that DNA, right? So right. For, for data storage, we're not talking about using biological DNA. We're not looking for cells that, you know, have that data or manipulating, right. you know, making mutant rats or something. It's, <laughs> right, it's, all, uh, it's all chemical synthesis on a bench somewhere. Right. Um, and so that, that process uh, has been around for, for some years now, but really in the past decade or so, the, the biotech industry has pushed this chemical synthesis of DNA to the point where we're having this conversation now, where it's possible to write large amounts of synthetic DNA with with high fidelity, with low error rates, um, and so the way the way that works, it's it's um, <clears throat> it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like three D printing. You have uh, you have a system. You start with a chip, and you put down a linker, so you can attach biological molecules to to your chip surface, mm -hmm. um, and then there's a cycle, uh, a cyclic reaction. Um, to add uh, each base that you want. Um, I think of it almost like, you know, building up a stack of, of Legos of four different colors, right? You've got your red, green, yellow, and blue. Mm -hmm. And the strand of DNA that you want to write is some sequence of those, of those colors. Um, and by, you know, by bringing in the right chemicals at the right time, you can get that strand to grow. The, the main challenge is um, the, the way the process works, if you just... Did that without thinking about it, you would just get. Um, say you wanted to add the blue Lego first, you would get blue, 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 blue. It would just keep adding, right. and it wouldn't stop. Right. So we have to have a controlled addition, and that's that's what's been really the advance in the industry more recently. Is is this this technique? It's called the phosphorambidite process to uh, control the addition of these bases, so we can arbitrarily write sequences of DNA. Mm. And the way that's done is is really by just by adding what's called uh, protecting groups on on the DNA monomers. So you can think of it like uh, capping off the little bump on the top of each Lego, mm. right? So you put on one of these blue Lego bricks, but then you cap off the top. So you can't stick anything else to it mm -hmm. until you remove that cap. Um, so controlled synthesis of DNA then comes down to basically, you know, bringing in your right bases, your right Lego colors in the right sequence with this cap, and then removing the cap when you're ready to add the next one. Mm. Um, and by doing that, you can actually parallelize the process so you can write many, many different strands of DNA in parallel on the surface of a chip all at once. And as long as you can control, you know, which caps you remove at which time, you can write an arbitrary sequence. Is it, is it fast or is it time-consuming? It's time-consuming, and that's why making it parallel like this is, is critical. It can, take, you know, it can take the better part of a day to write a strand of DNA that's, say, 100 bases long. So... Help me to understand that if I if I'm trying to save, well, just a little while ago I was copying files off of a microchip onto my hard drive, mm -hmm. and if somebody's not familiar with this process, they it's it's not as simple as well, it is as simple because we've made it just point and click, so it's very consumer friendly. Hey, rem copy from here or cut from here and paste there, 
but there's a lot of backend infrastructure that's called into place uh, or called into uh, action to move that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there, it's time consuming. It wasn't didn't take me very much time at all to record the things that I recorded, but to move them across a backend bus and all this architecture could take 15 or 20 minutes for me to move, I don't know, a few gigs worth of stuff in with these particular uh, medium. When you're doing this in DNA, if I've got a, hard, a terabyte of electronic data and I want to put it on a DNA storage platform, mm-hmm. Is that quick? Is it time-consuming? How does it work? Yeah, so it's, it's time-consuming, and that's and that's um, that's sort of what's kept the field where it is now, where you know people have done this only for relatively small amounts of data. It's it's currently time-consuming, and it's expensive, uh, especially compared to you know just writing something on your hard drive. Mm. Um, the conversion from your digital file to the sequence or really sequences of DNA that you want to write, um, th- that can be fast. Um, but then the write process, the write limiting step is, is just how long it takes that chemical synthesis process to run. Um, but what we're trying to do to get around that problem is, is make it so we can write, you know, millions or hundreds of millions of strands of DNA all at once. So it, it's still going to take you a day to write your data, but you'll get, you know, you'll get a huge amount out at the end. And, mm-hmm. and that's why the, the first application in Vision for DNA is certainly sort of more like deep arch- archival cold storage where you're not having to do this read-write operation often. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not yet going to be something like a hard drive where you can quickly access and, and overwrite. Would, so it'd be storing, um, you know, look, you're, you're done. Maybe it's my, all my tax returns, not just for me, but for the United States of America mm-hmm. t- from 10 years ago and older so we're not going to be changing those. They're done overwhelmingly anyway. 99% are done, and now I'm just archiving it. Exactly, yeah. The, the people most interested in, in DNA data storage at, at this time are, are companies or government entities that, that have to archive large amounts of data for a long time, whether that's you know people's personal photos that they're storing in the cloud or right a government agency that needs to maintain these records. They're not going to change them, but they better still be there in 50 years. I want you to appreciate the irony of what you just said, DNA in the cloud. Mm. I, 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 isn't that hilarious to think about that? Imagine if we were talking to Sir Isaac Newton and trying to explain, uh, I don't know if he had a, a, much of a grasp of DNA, probably not, or, or anything's related to that. Then we're talking about the cloud. He's trying to figure out how water vapor comes into all of this. He'd just be blown away by the colors on our smartphone. Yep. You know, one of the smartest men in history. It, it do you ever sit there sometimes at your workbench and just start laughing? Like we 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 talk about it as all these processes and this um, and it is. I mean, it's it's remarkable to think about um, what you're able to accomplish at your workbench, but it's it's almost like playing with the stuff of the gods, like building blocks of life and merging electronic with uh, synthetic genetic material. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, the, the individual steps are kind of mundane, but when you when you step back, it, it really is very cool to be able to to do this. It, there's a, you know, the 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 biologists I work with call this whole field synthetic biology, basically, you know, mm-hmm. like learning how to manipulate um, what, you know, ideas that came from from living systems biology, but then sort of, yeah, bend them to our will. Right. Do you when you when you're working on this and you're working on these processes, what besides having in in the IT world, we would call it threads. So I don't just want a fast processor. I want a processor that can do simultaneous things. I think that's what we're talking about. So the the more, it's just like traffic out here on the freeway. 
I don't just want to increase the potential of the speed of the vehicles. I want to have as many lanes as I can so I can move traffic. And then I might have, if they follow all the rules of humanity, slow traffic in the right lanes, fast traffic in the left lanes. And I need to reiterate that to my friends here in Atlanta, slow traffic in the right, fast in the left. But if you could structure, I've got a certain number of lanes, uh, the vehicles can move at a certain speed. I've got the ability to do off ramps and I've got, uh, you know, here we've got, whether it's the HOV lane or the, the Peach Pass lane, I segregate the types of data and how people are moving. When you think about that on the workbench, what makes, is it j- the process go faster? Is it in IT, it's, I need more power. I need more threads. Is it the same in your world or is how would you impact the speed at which you could accomplish this synthesis? Um, yeah, I mean the the synthesis process is it's it's basically limited by how long um, you know how long it takes to get the reagents to to where they need to react, and then waiting long enough that that we're sure they've reacted. And that's a process that that honestly hasn't been fully optimized yet because we're still at this kind of early stage of mm-hmm. the technology. We're trying to make sure it works and that it can work at a at a large scale. But pushing the time. Um, there are a few ways to do it, but it's not, it hasn't been as explored as much as just uh, kind of pushing the total volume of data that we're writing. Uh, again, because the, the first application, the sort of what's, what's driving the, the current funding in the field is, is looking at it for, for an archive, mm-hmm. where if it takes you, you know, 10 hours versus five hours to write, it's not that big a difference. Right. And we don't see any way in the near future to get that down to, you know, seconds or milliseconds to compete right. with sort of you know, quick access technologies. Right. So it's the chemical process. Yeah, sort of each each step of this cycle to add a base can take several minutes to to do the sequence of um, you know adding the base, washing it, uh, you know doing some oxidation to improve the, the bond, uh, going through that process, and then the step to 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 remove the the protecting group to take off that cap on the Lego. That usually involves introducing some acid and letting it react for a while to to. To, to take away the the protecting group, mm-hmm. um, each of those steps can take uh, can take several seconds to a minute, and so the the whole process then ends up stretching to to many hours if you want to write a long strand. Still seems like I'm being sacrilegious when I laugh about it's going to take several seconds or a minute to effectively create one of the building blocks of life. This is ridiculous. <laughs> How impatient have we become? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, that 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 part is real though. The, the our our primary collaborator on this project is is this company uh, Twist Bioscience, which is uh, you know one of the leading commercial providers of um, synthetic DNA. Mm. And for many years now, it's been possible you know if you want to make your own gene uh, to you know write down your sequence and send it to Twist, and they'll print it for you, and you'll have your DNA back you know in a couple of days. That's the why. W- what would you do with that? Is that just to have a novelty? This is my DNA. I mean, couldn't you just spit in a cup and there's your DNA? Well, if you want to, if you want to modify it, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I want to modify my DNA, but I don't. I don't think I'd be employed long if somebody here got my list of things modify mm. like this. Especially if my wife gets a hold of that list, she's like, "Here's how I want to modify his yeah. DNA." <laughs> um, why is it easier to know more about a mummy? that's a thousand years old and you maybe draw conclusions about that than it is my IBM XT computer from 1985 with dual floppy drives. Why, Mm -hmm. what is it about DNA or that system that allows it the integrity of who and what it is to last 
I don't want to say for, for uh, you know, forever, but certainly for centuries, if not millennia. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it, it can be almost forever, and we can talk about that. Um, but uh, that, that's one of the big advantages of DNA is it's sort of universality. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember floppy disks, but my, my, my kids my kids only know them as, like, the save icon, right? Right, that's exactly um, right. Yeah, and so... Um, yeah, the the what's 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 great about DNA is that the 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 data is not the um, is not bound to like the write and read hardware. Right. Um, the these chips I'm talking about that we're developing to write DNA, those are the chips we have now. Mm-hmm. But we write the DNA, we wash it off, and then you can forget about the chip. And if you come back in 50 years, what you have is you know a pool of DNA. Mm. And then whatever technology exists to sequence the DNA uh, will work. And that's why, you know, getting the DNA from something like a mummy is, is still possible. We have, you know, we have DNA sequencers um, and we'll have even better ones in 100 years. Right. But but all of them are capable of, of reading DNA. And as long as people are around and are made of DNA, we're going to have a way to read that data. Um, whereas for for your floppy drive, yeah, you have to find a drive and you have to find the right connector to plug it in. Right. Um, and all that thing, you know, all those vanish over time. Right. How hard is it to copy once you have the material made? Can you make two or three uh, or, or a million or whatever copies of it? Does it take as long to copy it as it does to make it? Uh, no, no. So it's, it's, it's much faster to copy DNA than to write it in the first place, which okay. is another kind of fundamental difference if you're thinking of like a data archive with DNA compared to your conventional archive. You know, if you have a like an exabyte storage facility with a million hard drives and right. you want to duplicate that, it will cost you that much money again to get all those hard drives right. Right, and another copy. Uh, with DNA, in principle, you can copy it very quickly using uh, uh, PCR. People are familiar with PCR now from, from COVID testing. Right. Right? There, are, there are very rapid ways to, uh, to replicate DNA, again, because of its sort of fundamental double helix structure. Right. Each of these bases that contain the information will naturally bind only to their complement. And right. so you can, you can just... Uh, put the DNA in a solution with, you know, all the available bases, the AGCT. And if you have a single strand of DNA, it will automatically, with the right enzyme, build uh, the complement right. and you have a copy. Then you just, you know, it's called melt the DNA to split it into the two strands again. And, and you've doubled your archive. And that can, be, um, that can be done for, relatively speaking, almost no cost in time compared to writing the archive in the first place. How do you maintain one of the big things in storage is making sure that the integrity remains. And what I mean by that is there's sort of a couple ways, at least that I think about that. One is just that um, it, it's going to last. I think we've already covered that. Like if I've written it to this medium, whatever it is, it's going to last. And the second is, which is why I've got the rise of blockchain technologies, I want to make sure the integrity hasn't been changed. It's only, it was only written a month ago. It's going to last 20 years in this hard drive medium. But I don't want somebody to change a one or a zero. And I want to know if anybody's come in, is, is what we're talking about with DNA, is it just as vulnerable as any other kind where it's, it's not a big deal to, could you go in subtly and change it? Or is there a way to have, like, I've got, the ability to do a sort of a data integrity check to see if what was originally written is the exact same. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'd say that's something that people are sort of just starting to think about is, is okay. how do you actually do an integrity check or even like a fixity check, see if it's even there. Right. Um, if, you know, if your plan is to store your DNA for a thousand years, yeah, at some point in the thousand years, you need to go in and, and see that it's still there. Right. Um, 
there you have some of the same concerns certainly with with dna integrity the the information can degrade over time if it's under the the wrong conditions and mm-hmm. so part of part of making a very long lived archive would be storing the dna in a particular way mm-hmm. um but uh, in terms of you know somebody coming in and changing the data arguably it's less sensitive to that than um than conventional storage uh because um you would need you know you would need to you would need to access your pool of dna and you know go in there with another synthesis machine essentially to replace strands or or something like that mm-hmm. um it's not uh you can't as easily like you know flip a switch and change a change a bit from 1 to 0 right in terms of orders of magnitude, if we took, I don't know, every encyclopedia, the 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 Smithsonian's entire archive of music or whatever, would we be? Is is that a bowl full of DNA? Is it a vial of DNA? How how much? And how long would it take to to do mm-hmm. something like that? So we got a hundred. I don't know what it would be. A hundred petabytes. A ridiculous amount. I'm not talking about the kind of information that comes off a GE jet engine, you know, you just let that sucker run and collect data and you'll, you know, you've got unbelievable amount of data. But if we're, if we're talking about art, the col- all the collection of art or images or printed word in the world is that if by way of concept, I'm imagining how many hard drives that would be because I'm in the data center business and mm-hmm. I have multi-million square foot facilities that has all the cloud compute and e-commerce and social media and whatever in them and i so i have an idea of the physical infrastructure how, how would we is that a two liter of material what do you how would you communicate that um yeah so it could be within two liters if if you start it all in one pool uh the 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 issue is if you want to ever read it back out again oh. um you would have to you have to be more clever about how you arrange the dna okay um so the uh We've talked about writing DNA. I mean, mm-hmm. to, to to read the DNA, you essentially have to take it to a DNA sequencer, and that can be um, faster than synthesis and and cheaper with current technology. But it, mm-hmm. but it's still a relatively slow process, mm-hmm. and so you definitely don't want to. If you're talking about like exabytes of data, uh, you don't want to have to sequence that entire archive uh, every time you want to pull one file out. So one of the things people are worrying about a lot with DNA is how do you do the equivalent of random access, um, whether that's a physical uh, strategy or there are some ideas for chemical random access, to, to only pull out the files you want mm. um, from your archive. And I think the, um, I'm speculating, but I think the, uh, the sort of unit size for, say, a drop of DNA is probably more like, um, more like a petabyte in one drop. Mm. If it gets much bigger than that, um, it's hard even with these uh, sort of indexing and access strategies to to get to your data. So you would probably, to have really large archives, have a series of, of drops of DNA. And they probably wouldn't actually be drops. It's better to, to lyophilize or dry out the DNA mm-hmm. for long-term storage. So you'd have like little spots of, of powder, essentially, um, that you would then have to, to rehydrate to pull out bits of data. Um, so there's still some kind of file indexing and access problems that need to be sorted out, you know, when we get to these large data volumes, right. uh, which is why I'm hedging on answering the question because right. the, you know, the data density is one thing, but the practical density, um, is a few orders of magnitude less, but yeah, if I, here's what, on the one hand, it's, it's blowing my mind. It's so cool. 
I my dad worked for IBM for many many years, and not long ago I was watching an illustration that was talking about one of the first hard drives, and I I don't know if IBM had the first, but they were certainly one of the folks that had one of the first, and they are these massive cart size devices, extremely expensive, extremely clunky, and you. Flash forward 60, 70 years, and like I said, I've got gigabytes available to me for a few bucks at Walmart that fits on my keychain. With that analogy in mind, as we're imagining how we store, whether it's in this uh, drop of liquid or powder or whatever, can you imagine a time in the future where to write or to access this is not only easier and faster, it's more accessible. In other words, back then, 50, 70 years ago, mm-hmm. a university would not have a hard driver. Maybe some big government think tank or something like a military operation might have something, but certainly not just your regular everyday business and no consumer would have something like that. What you're describing to me sounds like I probably, you may, because this is your business, have a synthesizer at home just out there in the garage running away doing your experiments. But I, I wouldn't. My biz, my company wouldn't. Do you, do you think there's a path to that or are we, are we not thinking about it the right way? No, this is really going to just be this long form, take your time, you'll outsource it almost like the cloud. You'll outsource it to a DNA storage as a service company. And they're going to do that. Or do you think, and whether it's a five years or 50 years, it will be more consumer? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a path to that. I mean, I think if you're talking about the, you know, the first five or 10 years that this you know, becomes commercially viable, it, it, will, it would start with storage as a service with you know, big companies doing the synthesis. Uh, that, that makes economic sense for you know, the volume of reagents and the cost of making these chips. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do see a... I do see a path to um, to scaling that down to consumer level. Um, I think one of the one of the neat things about moving from conventional storage to DNA storage is we kind of get to hit reset on Moore's law. Mm. Um, you know, with 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 hard drives, where you know we're pushing the limit of how you know physical limits of how 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 small we can fabricate right um, domains right and. With uh, with DNA storage, the we're not we're not nearly there yet. The the chips that we're making are you know we, we do we do actually use uh, uh, chips from a CMOS foundry to control the synthesis process over you know millions of wells at once, mm-hmm. um, and you know advanced nanofabrication to do post processing and, and make the little micro wells where the DNA grows. Mm-hmm. Um, but the process nodes we're using are nowhere near state of the art for. Um, um, you know, for the semiconductor industry, we're we're pretty far back. So there's a lot of room to go to to shrink that down. Um, and so the the main thrust of the program uh, that we're currently working on um, is is to try to make this uh, vastly cheaper, mm-hmm. right? So the the technology exists, but the question is, can you scale it? Mostly in cost uh, is the first concern to the point where um, you know commercial entities are interested in doing this. Um, and the, I think the time will, will always be something of an issue because you're, you're just not going to get synthesis, uh, you know, at the scale of, of a quick read-write operation on, 
you know, on your hard drive. Mm-hmm. Um, but you could get the cost competitive uh, um, with hard drive as these things ramp up. Right. And so th- there are there are already companies that sell benchtop uh, DNA synthesis machines. I mean, you wouldn't buy one unless you were a, right. a biochemistry lab, but right. uh, and they can't produce much on the scale of data storage. Right. Uh, but that exists, and as as that technology gets cheaper, it you know you could imagine having something like a three D printer size machine at your house where you could write your your DNA at home uh, and store it that way. I feel like I should write down this day and time when you said you wouldn't really want to do this at home, and here's why. <laughs> I remember when I first got exposed to 3D printing, and somebody said, well, you'll never really do this at home, but uh, my friends have been going to the library here in the Atlanta area. A number of the libraries mm-hmm. will, if you bring in the file or whatever, they'll let you print right there. And now I have friends, we're big board gamer nerds, in industry, they 3D print at home. I don't know that it's particularly economical, but it certainly is you know, nerd central 3d print, either their own designs or designs they can download from the web or, uh, we've got somebody coming on the show here soon. That's 3d printing school buildings to take them around the world. So they can do a deploy quickly or whatever, who would have ever thought the economic solution to building a classroom Mm -hmm. in Madagascar is I can bring an onsite grid and 3d print in a few days a safe solar-powered building to teach children, and that is vastly more economical than trying to build uh, following traditional building methods there. And so I suppose the big thing is it's just as sometimes we have these breakthroughs, right? Original computers were big vacuum tubes and all this other stuff. And as we make breakthroughs coming along, we don't know. We just know. We trust that they're, we're going to have breakthroughs. We don't know what they are exactly but it just seems like we dare the universe. I think you scientists do this all the time on purpose. We dare the universe. You know what? There's no way we can break the laws of physics here. And then you figure out so, somebody comes up with a crazy idea like storing stuff in genetic material. And all of a sudden we accelerate decades into the future almost. Is that your experience? Uh, I'm in. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're sitting around in graduate school, once upon a time, was this your first love? I need to figure out how to do DNA storage, or was there? What was your original idea that you thought you were going to chase? Oh, not at all. I mean, and and so I'm I'm a I'm a physicist by training. In in graduate school, I was doing you know precision measurements on matter and antimatter and trying to compare them to see if you know the laws of the universe hold up that yeah. that sort of thing. Very basic research. Uh, very cool, but you know no application. Right. Um, the. Uh, I didn't get into to DNA data until until very recently, kind of as an outgrowth of this entirely different thing we've been working on at, at GTRI, uh, which is uh, quantum information and quantum computing. Quantum information. I've heard of quantum computing. What does that mean? Yeah. Well, this is an entirely different podcast, but... Um, <laughs> well, we'll say that for another time, but just briefly, <laughs> yeah. what's the what's the difference between the two? Why would you distinguish them? Yeah, very briefly. So uh, um, quantum information as opposed to... Quantum computing, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I lumped them together. I mean, okay. yeah. They're the same thing. But I've never heard anybody say quantum information. How would you define quantum information? What does that mean? Quantum information processing, which is, you know, equivalent to quantum computing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, for sure, we need to have you on to talk about that. We have we just had a guy named um, David Ginger on, uh, Professor David Ginger out of the University of Washington. His lab is one of 10 or 11 that was just funded by the NSF and he's in the optoelectronic um, space. Great podcast. 
His particular lab is specifically in advanced material science, but he works with these other uh, labs. And one of the things he spent time helping us understand was the role of quantum dots. And we see them on all the latest and greatest TVs out mm-hmm. there. I just thought it was some kind of a marketing gimmick. And he's like, well, there may be some truth to that, but here's the role they play and and how it's uh, how we're investigating these in next generation material science and in optoelectronics and uh, probably a, a podcast for another day with him too, yeah. but really cool. Yeah, no, I, there is a lot of hype around quantum, but it's 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 a real thing. And like DNA storage, it's this you know potentially transformative technology for for IT. Um, our our group at JTRI doesn't work with quantum dots, but we we have uh, qubits, quantum bits. Mm-hmm. Um, that are that are essentially uh, trapped ions. So we have an atomic ion in a trap, um, mm-hmm. and we manipulate its internal energy states to make our, our zero or one, like the ground state is a zero and the excited state is a one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like the basic unit of our quantum processor. Um, the way we got from there to data storage is that um, we had worked a lot over the years with, with IARPA. I don't know if you're familiar with IARPA. Uh, so IARPA is the uh, Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, sort of the intelligence community equivalent of DARPA. Okay. So they look, they have, they fund forward-looking research that you know will make a difference in information technology. Right. Um, and IARPA has been funding quantum computing for a long time. Um, and we had done projects with them to develop these uh, microfabricated surface electrode traps. So basically, you know, structures of very small electrodes that we apply voltages to 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 confine our atoms mm. um, and hold them to to form the you know the bits in our quantum computer. How do you think we're how do you think we're competing on the world stage with this? And you just that popped in my mind because when you talked about IARPA. We've had on here uh, folks from DARPA before, mm-hmm. and uh, I cannot believe this professor. This is a you'll find out when you get uh, certain distance into your fifties. Names will go right out my head, but he is uh, currently a tenure professor at Villanova, but spent time at DARPA. He's been in a number of agencies. Really, really smart guy, and one of his concerns is key areas of technology are really focused not just by industry, but by states uh, around the world. And some of them are friendly with the U.S. Some of them are less friendly with the U.S. I wouldn't say enemy, but they are. some are our allies, some are not our allies. Mm-hmm. And everybody's looking for a competitive advantage. And so he, one of his things was, look, in artificial intelligence, facial recognition, some of these other things, and then the ethic around those things, it's a we need to think of it as a competitive marketplace and as a country in some ways we're fantastic but in other areas we um we don't have the same focus that they do as it relates to dna storage or any of this are other countries or other locations investing the time and energy do you think that these the states are or or you guys lead in the field with this um i hope we're leading i mean there there certainly are there is activity in in dna data storage and in other countries Mm -hmm. um one of the other leading synthesis companies for dna is is based in france okay um and then i saw a paper recently out of china on a you know dna codec for right for storing data um the I think the you know U.S. government is is aware of that and trying to maintain the advantage. The mm-hmm. the reason that that they funded the the project I work on is to, to hopefully sort of bridge the gap between where the technology is now and where uh, you know U.S. industry will be interested in in really picking up and running with it. Mm-hmm. And so that's largely the role of, of places like IARPA and DARPA is to try to push research like that and keep keep the U.S. at the forefront. Yeah. 
one of the things he said that was I thought was really cool was, at least with DARPA when he was there, I think he believes it's the same, was when they fund a project, unlike industry, um, they're not, they haven't predetermined an outcome. What they want is run with it. What if? Spitball. Test it. Break it. Accelerate it. We're not trying to get you to a profit center. We're not trying to get you to say it, it hits this thing or it misses this thing or whatever. We just want to know the facts and we want to remove, bar- this is in a, I suppose, you know, the most Pollyanna way <laughs> to think about it. I'm sure it's not quite that clear, but essentially take and run with this thing and explore it in every way that you can and let us know what's real and what's not real about it. Has that been your experience? Um, yeah, it's similar. I mean, this, this uh, so several years back, IRPA launched this program called Molecular Information Storage, or, or MIST, which is, which is what's funding the bulk of the work in, in DNA storage right now in, in the U.S. And, um, and the goal of that program is, is uh, th- there, are, there are sort of hard metrics that, that mm-hmm. they want us to shoot for, but the goal is essentially just to yeah, advance state-of-the-art and find what are the roadblocks in scaling the technology up from, from where it is now, where you, you can actually, you can order, if you have a data file that you want stored in DNA, you could order that from a company like Twist today, but it would cost you the equivalent of like $1,000 per megabyte or something like that. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so... You know, seeing how far we can push that effective cost um, and you know data throughput uh, is is what they're interested in seeing. How much can we do that in a few years? What's the biggest barrier to cost? Do you think? Um, currently, it's it's this the sort of the slowness of the write process and how many um, strands of DNA you could write on a single chip. Um, so as I was saying before, it takes it takes time, a long time, to write one strand of DNA. Right. Um, but for with the chips we're designing, for essentially the same time and the same cost in reagents, because you're just flowing them over the whole chip surface at once, you can write as many independent strands of DNA as you can squeeze onto a chip. Um, and so if you can scale that number way up, you can be writing um, you know gigabytes of data instead of megabytes for essentially the same cost. Mm. And that's in a nutshell, what we're trying to do. Is the production of this as sensitive as, for example, chip manufacturing? Uh, I've been in some prefabs before, and you think an operating room is a clean room. Mm-hmm. This makes an operating room look like a junkyard. I mean, it is super clean. Is yeah. that the same? I mean, the, the chips we're using come out of exactly those fabs. Yeah. Right. Um, the... Once uh, once the chip is made, it's it's still pretty clean, a little less clean because we only sort of interact with the top surface of the chip, um, which is you know several layers up from the from the CMOS. Right. Um, but uh, it's still you know the reactions take place in a you know sealed flow cell, so only the reagents we we flow in can get there, um, mm. and keeping that process clean does determine you know sort of how good your DNA is mm-hmm. at the end of the write, which is equivalent to, you know, errors in a, in a digital file. Right. How, what's this, what's like a physical footprint? Uh, I realize that uh, an academic lab is different than a production. I once, when I was, uh, I was a kid in the 90s, I got to go to, I think it's Abbott Labs up in uh, Chicago. And when you go to the research lab, that's not the same as the production lab. Mm-hmm. So research were these peptide machines filled with amino acids and they're doing all this um, building building peptides and whatever very small scale because they're just trying to experiment on these these little things but is 
is your lab similar to that? Yeah, we're we're somewhere in between that right now. So we're we're working on this uh, with uh, with Twist Bioscience, like I mentioned, and mm -hmm. the the current synthesis chips and machines are in their research lab, where they look more like an academic lab. It's on a table, um, right. relatively open, you know, like a wet wet lab setup. Um, but down the hall from that is their production facility, right. uh, which is based on a, a similar, slightly different technology. Um, for sort of like inkjet printing DNA, right? Um, and that room is, you know, sealed off and has industrial-looking machines to do um, to fulfill their commercial orders. And so it's it's not too many steps from where we are now to to moving into that sort of facility. When do you think this becomes? If you had to guess, and I know physicists in particular don't like to guess, when does it become more normative? And I'm not going to allow you to cheat and say, well, when it gets cheaper. I don't mean. What are the the business? But if you just imagine, um, even even at expense, we have to do something with this archival data. I mean, we're just running. It's almost like a mm -hmm. landfill. Like at some point, we got to figure out whatever the cost. We can't keep dumping it yeah. down at the end of the road. Yeah, I've seen predictions that sometime within the century, you would have to cover the whole surface of the earth with data centers to to keep up with production. Yeah, and that's not going to happen, right. right? Or more terrifying, people are saying, "Well, we got to." You know, hey, let's go to environments we're not in now, like under the ocean. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. Let's go screw up that world too. So, and I'm all about data centers. I love data centers, mm -hmm. but it's um, it's not a realistic answer. So, w as you imagine this, just in your experience and your reading or whatever, I think in the next ten years it's going to be normal. Next five years, next fifty years, what do you imagine? Yeah, I mean, there's a you know. <laughs> It's a joke in physics that everything is always 10 years away, right? So ask me again. Um, I think, uh, I mean, the, it depends what you mean by normal. Uh, the I think the first realistic application for this is becoming cost competitive with um, uh, with deep archival storage, you know, something like Amazon Glacier. Mm. Um, because even if it costs a lot of money to, to write your DNA one time, if you look at the life cycle cost, considering, you know, the power to operate your data center right. and to, you know, refresh um, your drives every five, 10 years, right. um, that, that's where DNA can win out um, in that sort of application. Sure. I think, I think within, um, again, just speculating, I, I think within 10 years, there should be, um, there should be chips for DNA writing that are, that are roughly cost competitive with that. Mm. You know, it will be up to the data storage industry to decide. I mean, if it's worth paying the upfront premium compared to, right. um, you know, compared to business as usual now. And I'm not, right. I'm not in that industry, so right. I don't know. But I think it will be close enough, and that that's the whole point of what we're doing now is to make it close enough that that becomes a hard decision. Do you do you write your data in DNA, expecting that you're going to store it for a hundred years plus, right. uh, or do you go with tape and and replace your tape every ten years? Right. What is Amazon Glacier? Do you know what medium they use? Um, I assume it's tape. Okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I have. I should probably know that, but I don't know. But that's. Uh, it seems like there's such a data archival challenge that I'm. I have trouble imagining. So that might be some good research for me to do to go see how, whether it's Amazon or whoever are trying to solve it. There's so much data that's being generated. We don't even, in fact, in a lot of cases, we don't even try to capture most of it anymore. We just sort of let it mm -hmm. flow past because we would just overwhelm our infrastructure. Yeah. Now more, it's the art of how do we pick out 
the representative important parts mm-hmm. rather than all of it. Yeah, no, we're, we're already in the situation. I mean, the numbers I've seen are, yeah, if you look at sort of the total worldwide data copied, you know, um, something like, what, 100 zettabytes or something like that, yeah. which is, what, a billion terabytes? Too and, many. Yeah, too many. And, uh, and already that's more than, like, the worldwide data storage capacity. So we're already sort of effectively making those decisions as, you know, what do we store and what do we not? Right. But we... Here's where I heard somebody making this argument on why we want to store, because we were like, look, just, you know, in in my industry, we use data lakes, not just because we're a data center, but we try to leverage the data we have to make business and analytical predictions for us, to inform us uh, where should we concentrate resources, can we see patterns in energy consumption, whatever, all kinds of things. And... I've spent a lot of time talking to people about artificial intelligence, machine learning, mechanization, automation. What do you think the single most important thing to all of those is? Data. How do I, the more my machine has access to data, whether it's biased data or unbiased data, a whole nother conversation. Um, Dr. Wolpe was on not long ago from Emory, and one of the things he talked about was when you and I, t- teaching ethics to a machine is different than it is to a human being. There are so many things, if you were to ask a, I don't know, a person of a certain age, is this fill-in-the-blank behavior right or wrong, they'll give you an answer most of the time. Whether you agree or disagree, they're going to give you an answer. If you ask them where they learned it, most of the time, they don't remember. So we're not talking, he said, is things as simple as the Ten Commandments or whatever. But if you had a, and he'd give a hypothetical situation, if you had a this going on and this going on, what's the more right or what's the more wrong decision? Machines don't have the same situation as a human being. You've gone through all kinds of experiences in your life, many, and you were taught the whole time but a lot of it was indirect. You just observed the parents around you or the students around you or your whatever, the voices in your head. God help us all when we listen to the voices in our head. Machine doesn't have any voices in its head. It has to be told this, is, um, this behavior is rewarded, this behavior is punished, unless the behavior that I was going to punish you is better than this other behavior, right? Don't hurt a human being unless you've got to swerve the car and you're only going to hit hurt two humans over here instead of 40 humans here. Or this human's an adult at the end of their warranty. These are new humans at the beginning of their warranty. So there's an ROI, whatever. Like there's this complexity and we've got to run through that. And so the more data we have for machines to draw on is this idea. We hear it in medical. The more brain scans that the devices can scan, the more supposedly accurate it can make a diagnosis or a treatment plan or whatever. So it feels like archiving data that sh- however we do it, a million dots, one big bucket of DNA, whatever it is, is more valuable to us than letting it go by. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, I'm not an expert in, in machine learning, but it's it's certainly the case that, um, you know, for, for training on these data sets, often we don't even know what, you know, what input is, is important for achieving, you know, whatever cost function we're trying to optimize. Right. And so you feed these systems more and more data, and right, every bit is important. So it's, it's true. I, I, yeah, the perspective we take, I guess, is that 
yeah, the more the more data we can store, the better. It's uh, it's difficult to make the decision of of what data not to store, mm-hmm. and, and it's not really human nature to you know discard things anyway. People will keep their cat photos forever, right? Um, or 1980s concert T-shirts or whatever. Or We're that. not judging at this uh, <laughs> podcast. Some of the first things that people have stored in DNA are things like music videos <clears throat> or you know something from an art festival, right? Of That's course, sort of, yeah. How would you know when you need to see that first-generation image of Rat in concert or... I'm going to stop right there before I get myself in trouble. Um, what is you... As you have conversations like this with people who aren't familiar with this industry or this technology, just in general, business people, technologists, what's the response? Are they... Are they fascinated by it? Do they think it's inconsequential? What's been your response so far? Yeah, I think there's a lot of interest. Um, I think I think most people do, if they look at it even a little bit, realize that there's a you know a data storage problem that needs to be addressed. And this is, I'm, I'm in my biased view, sort of the uh, one of the most likely candidates to to do that. Mm. Um, it's it's pretty much guaranteed that we're not going to get the same sort of you know, million-fold improvement that you saw from floppies to your, you know, your USB stick, right. you know, in the past couple decades, 20, 30 years from now, there's not going to be another factor of a million improvement in, right. in conventional storage. So I think it's acknowledged that we need something new. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of whether DNA is the answer, the main the main concern people generally have is, well, first of all, they hear DNA and they think that we're making, you know, mutants right. or some <clears throat> biological right. thing, right? Um, you do that in a different lab, not in this lab. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's behind the locked door. Um, yeah, so so you 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 have to assure people that it's synthetic DNA, and when we say DNA data storage, we're not talking about storing their DNA right. or doing surveillance or something like right. that. Um, the more practical concern that I've heard from from folks in in the data storage industry, uh, and you probably know more than than I do, is you know how do you really integrate this sort of biochemical system into a data center? Yeah. Um, where you know now you're worrying about like the quality of your reagents and your supply water and things like that and the environmental conditions um and i think that's a you know that that again is in in the bucket of questions that people are starting to worry about now that you know the technology is looking promising is you know can you actually make this um could you actually have this next to you know a rack of of tape or something or do you need a center that's just devoted to dna right you know in a weird way that while that's a question, those would be questions. It wouldn't even occur to me that that would be a problem only because ha- having been in the business for a while now, but also working with people who've been in it since data centers were really sort of the idea was coined, I want to say in the States in the early mid sixties, when we were trying to warehouse census data. And so somebody said, I think it was in the Midwest, Chicago or something, let's put it in a data center which is hysterical to go back and read when the news reports of they're, you know, they're violating our privacy. Here's all this. We've been talking about the same things for a very long time. Yep. But it but we keep figuring out how do we how do we build data centers that are strong enough to hold the weight of all the infrastructure? How do we build data centers that are highly redundant? That 10 years ago, you had to have a, in order to be competitive as a data center provider, I had to have not just plus one, like a spare tire. I had to have, in many cases, plus two or these very highly redundant systems. Now we get our redundancy, not just from infrastructure. We still get redundancy from infrastructure. But we'll do two or three or four moderate-sized data centers in a metropolitan area, and the applications will handle synchronization. And um, Amazon's famous for that. A lot of companies kind of follow this two or three 
um, uh, distributed model. So we've, we just keep figuring it out. How do I remove heat? How do I, in fact, more and more data centers are becoming, if you were to go into a data center 10 years ago, people my size loved it. Because when it was really hot outside, I could come into that That's nice, cool. cool data center and, um, and enjoy that weather. And yet, most of the electronic standards are saying, man, that's just too expensive to do that. So they make hard drives or other computer infrastructure that's very highly resilient to, uh, I think that's very poor grammar, but very resilient to humidity, Mm -hmm. to temperature, to whatever. In fact, it's almost becoming uncomfortable for people to work in, but it's very comfortable for machines to work in. So we keep overcoming the obstacles, whatever it is. Cost and economics drive this a lot. So I'm sure if and when you can make it in a lab and scale it to a certain size and it is uh, it solves the problem, whether they go into a third-party provider like us or somebody does an on-prem, it would probably start military and, you know, big, like big healthcare uh, industry, mm-hmm. you know, um, insurance, things like that, where they need massive, I mean, they got all these actuarial tables. Yep. Um, how they how they draw that out to do calculation and whatever, maybe not so much, but once they make a decision to be able to then to write it, and if it takes a week to write it, who cares? It's there forever. It seems to me, just from our conversation, that some of those ways are probably um, the initial really big commercial Mm -hmm. uses. I think that's right, yeah. And I think think it's interesting, though, to, to, to think about how yeah, whether you know DNA and conventional storage can can play together if you need a dedicated facility. I think DNA would actually be happier in some of these older data centers that you're talking about, where it's nice and cold. Um, generally, it lasts longer. That way, you may have seen stories about like woolly mammoth DNA being sequenced uh, frozen in the tundra. Yeah. Um, and so, if you really want your DNA to live for a long time, you keep it cold. Uh, you, you remove the water. Um, right. But the, another option is to, you know, just enclose it in some hermetically sealed stainless steel container. Uh, there are companies that do this already, in fact. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could keep it in a center with, with much higher humidity. And as long as you don't get sort of much above body temperature, that's where, you know, right. DNA is happy up to that temperature and much hotter, it'll start to denature. Right. Um, so, so there are a few ways to, to do it. Yeah, we call that the Han Solo effect, where you cryogenically mm-hmm. seal them in some kind of... Uh, you know, we always talk about what happened to Han, but nobody celebrates the science necessary to fully freeze yep. a human being like that I and know. be able to pull him back out of it. Where, where's the love for the physicists <laughs> and the scientists? And to do it so quickly. Yeah. <laughs> to do it so quickly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, Nick, thanks for coming on the show today. What should we have talked about that we haven't talked about yet? Anything? Oh, have man. We... Um, I don't know. We didn't talk about... Uh, um, we didn't talk about DNA codex at all. I what don't know if that's of interest. I was very much interested. So when you think about that, what do you think about? Yeah, so I mean, it's uh, um, DNA data has the same sort of you know potential for error as conventional digital data, but but probably more so. Um, if you're thinking about ones and zeros, then then pretty much the only error you worry about is a bit flip, right? right. The, the, um, with with DNA, you can have you can have a number of additional error modes. You you can have the equivalent of a bit flip is what we call a substitution error, where you know you you thought you'd have a G and instead you have an A. Right. Right. Um, and you can correct that with the sort of conventional error correcting codes. Um, but there's also uh, one of the one of the fine print details of, of DNA data storage is that um, uh, the synthesis 
uh, technology, because it takes so long, and because of the chemistry involved, it, it's limited. There's a certain length limit to how long you can write synthetic DNA. Currently, people mm -hmm. are working on extending that, mm -hmm. and that limit is a couple hundred bases. Okay, um, and that's only you know on the order of 10, 20 bytes or so of data per strand. Okay, so if you have a big file, the first step in writing it to DNA is you know you convert it to to the sequences you want, but then you have to spread that over many, many strands of, of DNA. Mm -hmm. um, and so it becomes a little more complicated where each strand has to have an index telling you like where in the file it is. Mm -hmm. um, and also we apply, uh, you know, an encoding decoding strategy, a codec to, uh, to protect against errors. Mm -hmm. um, and those errors can be the substitutions that I mentioned, but you can also have uh, insertions where you write, you know, multiple bases instead of just one, and so your DNA strand ends up a couple bases longer than you wanted. Mm. You can have deletions where you fail to write a, a base, and so it ends up shorter. Um, and you can also have sequence loss entirely. So I mean, all of these processes, it's a chemical process to write it, then you wash it off the chip. There's usually some chemical processes to amplify the, the parts you want, and, um, and then more when you go to, to read the DNA. And so there's many opportunities for entire strands of DNA to be lost from your, from your file, essentially, before you get to the end and you've read out your DNA and converted back to, to digital. Um, so you need to, uh, your codec needs to be robust to all of that. And so there's a lot of work right now too, going into, uh, going into how do you do that? And it's a combination of sort of, uh, you know, conventional error correction, repetition type things. Um, but also, um, strategies that will allow you to, to tolerate the, the loss and the insertion, like longer length, shorter length strands. So that, that's an interesting field too. Um, <clears throat> When they're when they're done writing whatever the exercise is, I don't know if this is a function of the codec or something else. Will it tell you this was a successful write one and two? It matches like the process, the chemical process is done, and the outcome matches exactly what we expected it to be. Um, Here's why I asked that. Yeah, I'm I'm. I'm not familiar enough. I've just recently, this was shared with me. There's a thing called bit flipping in regular computer storage. Have you heard about this? Oh. Where it's not a process of, it, it is sort of a process in the right, but this kind of came up famously not long ago. And this is where it's, it could get slippery slope. So my readers need to hold on. Mm -hmm. There was an election. There I said it. But there was an election, not a presidential election, but there was a county election or something like that. Pretty sure it was here in the States. It was either States or France. France, you know, the French. We'll blame it on the French. But it's either here, the States or the France. But anyway, this, this official got this tremendous result in votes. And it's hard to have this conversation now because there's so much noise about election integrity or whatever, but they went back and they said, wait a minute, these voting machines show this, and this voting machine shows something different. I, the way I understand it is these things were, um, you. one was you voted, when you voted, you had two things. You had a digital entry and you had a card. And so they collected the cards and they compared it to the digital entry. I, I'm sure I'm getting some of this wrong, but in mm -hmm. any event, <clears throat> they had these two different medium. When they looked at the one medium, let's just call it the cards, it matched exactly what they would expect to have found. In fact, now that I think about it, I think it was Belgium. But they, it matched exactly what they expected to found. But in this one machine, the digital thing was off 
by this really odd number, like 4,096 or whatever, a mm-hmm. mathematical number. Yep. And what they discovered was a bit had flipped. And this phenomenon has happened in airliners. It's happened in a number of things. And it's atmospheric interference. I know it sounds crazy. I know it's, and I mean, whether it's atmospheric, whatever, it's like a solar ray or an ion flip or whatever word. I don't know enough about it. I'm screwing it up. Somebody's going to comment, send me a nasty gram in my email or whatever, but something like that. So it wasn't a human being trying to deceive anybody. It was an external environmental thing that happened that just because we're all being hit by radiation and rays as human beings, all of our devices, but if you have a device that wasn't shielded a certain way, you could have this thing called the bit flip. Mm-hmm. You just reminded me of that. I'm wondering if in DNA synthesis or storage, if this, if it's vulnerable to that kind of thing, like I'm describing over here in the electronic world, or no, it's vulnerable to the things that you described, but probably not with this vague thing that I've just described. Um, I mean, I think it could be both, actually, which is why you have to worry a little bit more about, about DNA errors, because you, you can sort of have all the conventional computing problems uh you could you could have an error in your first encoding step where you go from digital to to the dna sequence right. but then also the the chips that we're using to write dna they're they're essentially little microchips um and they're basically controlling the voltage across a huge array of of synthesis sites um and so if that control sequence is corrupted then yes you'll get you'll get errors in in what's written mm-hmm. um so there, there's a couple ways to look for that you need to do some sort of process monitoring while you write it's not um, it's not really possible to monitor at each of you know your millions and millions of synthesis sites what's going on, but at, right. a, at a larger level you can tell if sort of we're generating the the currents that we that we think we're generating. The the key step in the synthesis process is this deblock deprotection step um, that allows you to to say on this strand here and this strand here and this strand here I'm going to add the next base, and right. that that requires producing a little bit of current just at these locations at a certain point in the cycle. Right. Um, and so we can monitor at a kind of larger scale to see if that's happening. We apply the voltage, we see some current, and so it probably worked. Right. Um, it probably it probably worked. worked. The 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 real way to check it though is to you know look at your product, your right. DNA. And so there's a couple ways you can do that. There you can take advantage of the sort of copyability of, of DNA. You can right. you can take a portion of your pool and you can uh, sample it. You can sample it. Right. Um, and then you can sequence it and compare it to you know what you intended to write right. as a check, and you still have you know a, a large enough amount of because when we write when we write the DNA we make you know thousands of copies of each strand in right. each synthesis site. So you've right. got you've got material to play with and it's relatively easy to amplify it to right. get more. I'm imagining an SNL skit mm-hmm. where we take this conversation, we make 17 Han Solos. How much would it suck if you're Han Solo number 15, you're brought back into consciousness just to check to make sure that the original Han Solo was was uh, replicated or frozen or whatever written correctly and now we're just going to get rid of number 15 wait a minute i'm i'm han solo 50 you know i don't know that feels like there's an opportunity no it's true it's true for all the for all the data we're trying to write we have many many copies that that never participate right that's hilarious well nick thanks for coming in today i really appreciate it oh yeah thanks for having me this was fun I look forward to our next conversation, and uh, next time, let's get into quantum information and quantum computing. I, I understand nothing, but I keep having conversations in that space. It's a lot of fun. It Sometimes it reminds me of early days of, uh, oh, I suppose AI or blockchain or whatever, like we'll throw these buzzwords out there for those of us who really don't know what's going on and just feel like, well, 
mostly my artificial intelligence solution up against that problem, and it'll solve it just like that. And really doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's true. And some of it is buzzwords. Um, there, there, there is a lot of kind of unwarranted hype around quantum and people using it in that way to say, oh, this is right. a problem. Maybe a quantum computer can solve that problem. That's, right. that's generally not true. But there are also some real things that, that quantum can do that the right. you know, government is funding heavily. Right. So. Well, it sounds like a great conversation. I enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you on the next QTS experience. See you, everybody. Have a good one.